Good morning. It's a pretty interesting little piece of Luke's gospel that we get to hear today. In Luke's telling of Jesus's story, this is the very beginning of Jesus's public life. He's been away and he returns to Galilee. Word spreads about him throughout the countryside and he starts teaching in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. And Jesus returns to Galilee. Okay, one might ask, where has he been? And if we'd started our reading today at the beginning of chapter 4 rather than in the middle of it, we'd have known where Jesus has been. He's been around. First he was baptized by John, and then the Spirit descended upon him in the shape of a dove, and a voice came down from heaven, booming out that beautiful statement, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, we are told, was about 30 years old when all of this took place. Let that sink in for a moment. When you're in your 20s, 30 seems really old. When you're 31 and beyond, 30 seems really young. But at any rate, the 30-year-old Jesus was baptized and filled with the Spirit and was led into the wilderness by that same Spirit. And there he fasted for 40 days. Maybe let that sink in, too. He was famished we're told. And then he met the devil. And out there in the wilderness, alone and hungry, he was tempted with food, earthly power, and security, and he chose none of those things. The devil must have been a little disappointed, though maybe not. Maybe he was just doing his job, and he didn't really care about the outcome, because he just leaves Jesus without any protest or any comment. And that's where Jesus had been, out getting filled up with the Spirit, resisting the temptations that human beings are prone to. Sounds like he did okay out there. Better than okay, actually, because he returns home filled with power. And it must have been very apparent to anyone who came into contact with him even those who didn't meet him face to face but had heard the buzz that this young man was something special. And we know this because not just anyone was allowed to go into the synagogue to teach. You had to be a rabbi, and we have no story of Jesus have any, uh, Jesus's having had any rabbinical training. But there he was, teaching in the local Jewish house of worship, and instruction. And this is a big deal. And we know from the text that Jesus was no stranger at the synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. It was his custom to, gr to go there on the Sabbath. But today was different, perhaps because he was different, having been baptized and blessed, tempted and blessed again, and I get the feeling that he was still hungry from all that time alone in the desert because today he seems to be on fire and to know exactly who he is and what he has to do. 
So he opens the scroll, the text of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, we know that he didn't just open the scroll and start reading at random, and he wasn't led to this passage by a lectionary. He intentionally found this passage, or maybe he was led to it by the Spirit, that same Spirit that spoke the words, You are beloved, the same Spirit that led him and protected him through the wilderness and led him home to the synagogue and gave him the inspiration and courage to echo the bold claims that Isaiah had made. These are claims of mercy and justice, good news for the poor, the captives, and the oppressed. These are promises of freedom and health, restorations of dignity for those who have either been born into or fallen into poverty and disease. And when Jesus reads these statements of Isaiah, it's important to note that Isaiah makes no distinctions of who are to receive the gifts of mercy. And he makes it clear that perhaps the worthiest and the most blessed are exactly those who appear to deserve it the least. And Jesus will go on to demonstrate this love of mercy and justice throughout the rest of his short life and what we call his ministry. And this is where he publicly proclaims who he is and what he was born to do. In case anyone who was in the synagogue that day missed the point, he just simply rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. Maybe they got it, maybe they didn't, because they were all just staring at him. Today, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I can imagine the people who were there who had just heard Jesus proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I can imagine them going, wait, what? Is he claiming to be Isaiah, our biggest, best prophet? What is he saying here? How can he claim that kind of authority? Well, I don't want to spoil the story because Jimmy gets to preach on it next week. Let's just say that Jesus quoting Isaiah and claiming in their, that their hearing had made it so, it didn't go over very well with the people that day. Hard truths rarely go over very well. They don't go down easy. And it is a hard truth that along with the message of salvation and loving kindness, belovedness, and grace that Jesus brings, he also brings a message of justice and mercy. John knew it. John knew it before Jesus even arrived on the scene. 
when the crowds asked John, what are we supposed to do at the River Jordan when he was baptizing them? He quoted Isaiah also. And then he answered them, whoever has two coats must share them with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. He told the tax collectors not to be greedy. He told the soldiers the same thing. And Mary knew it even before Jesus was born. After the angel came to her and told her what was going to happen, she sings a song of joy. We call it the Magnificat. Mary preached on it during Advent. And she knows the message that the unborn baby in her womb is bringing. She sings, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. In the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And I I think it's an important message that we hear today. It's implied in most of the stories that we have about Jesus, about how he lived his life, about the lessons that he taught, and it is explicitly stated over and over that how we treat those who have little or nothing, those who are sick, and yes, even those who are in jail, the message of mercy and justice levels the playing field and shows us that we all matter. And we're intertwined in ways that aren't always obvious. And when they are pointed out to us, even when they're pointed out to us, these ways of connection are easy to overlook or even to deny. Sure, I'll love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor anyway? Jesus doesn't leave us any easy way out here. In fact, he leaves us no way out at all. Everybody is my neighbor. So how am I to respond? Paul speaks to this intertwining of all humanity in his letter to the church in Corinth. Of course, he's writing to a very early church and, and how to live together as a church, and he's talking about all the baptized being one body with many parts. But Jesus' message of love and redemption is a message for all, baptized or not. And Paul's vision of the body of Christ, it's a mystical vision. And we know that mystery is best expressed in story and metaphor. So if we lay, if we layer all three of these stories together, Isaiah's vision of mercy and justice for all, Jesus' bold statements of his mission of loving inclusion, bringing the whole world in under his wings, and Paul's metaphor of us all being different, yet equally important in the heart of God, We have an answer to the question, how do I respond? We're all part of a grand cosmic scheme. 
and we must work for the health of the whole. Because my well-being depends on your well-being, and our health is connected to, our, to the health of our neighbors. Now, we live in a time of radical individualism, and we're taught from birth that we're these autonomous beings, that we must make our way in a world that is indifferent to us, maybe even hostile to us, and that we only get what we want and need through our own force of will. And let's face it, the systems of power, economy, and government we were born into is pretty much set up that way. It's easy for me to be skeptical and more than a little cynical to believe that there is much that I can do as one person to change the way this world works. Frankly, I know that the way the world works has worked pretty darn well for me. I'm not living in poverty or in jail or oppressed, but I know that plenty of people are. Though the system of the world has worked for my benefit, it really doesn't for many. And things must not have been all that different in Isaiah's or Jesus's or Paul's times either. It's so woven into our story from Genesis on to today that justice and mercy are at the heart of God's love for us is so ingrained in this story that I have to believe that it's true. We hear stories of unjust rulers and systems that crush people, especially the weak and the vulnerable, and we hear the prophets proclaim that these human-made systems are not what God wants for the world. It is how we care for one another and how we care for the whole of humanity in Paul's vision for every eye, ear, hand, nose, and mouth, every individual that makes up the body of God. These are the things that matter. And this is where we find our redemption, our salvation, if you will, our peace. Just as Jesus was born for this, it's what we were born for, too. And it's an awesome responsibility. So I ask you and I ask myself, brothers and sisters, how will we respond? Amen.